Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Broken Banquet, a podcast about missions. We are your hosts, Will Bailey and Dr. Ashley Goad, and we are so glad that you have joined us for another conversation about the church and missions, about what healthy mission relationships can look like, and as we hear from others who have dedicated their lives in one way or another to mission work. We're so glad you're here, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Hey, Ashley. Hey, Will. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. It's Holy Week. It is Holy Week. What are your big plans for Holy Week? Well, I refer to it as the Super Bowl of Christianity this week. And uh, so it's a, it's a really big week around these parts. Our global mission team will gather on Monday night just to check in with each other and talk about all of our favorite people around the world. Um, Tuesday, Chris will have his big uh, heart procedure, so hopefully that's going to go well. Wednesday, we'll have our last night of our Lenten study. Uh, we've been walking through the the passion narrative week by week, and it's been fantastic, absolutely fantastic. I've loved leading that study. And on Thursday, we're having a Seder-like dinner, which will be I think really cool. It mimics the Passover uh, dinner that the the Feast of Unleavened Bread that Jesus participated in the Last Supper with a few Christian addings to it. So it's the first time we've done this in at least 10 years at our church, and we have a really great guy leading that for us. So I'm really excited about it. We have 175 people signed up, pretty stoked. And then Good Friday, we have our our music service and then our, our pastoral service and and then Saturday, we rest because God rested on Saturday. And then Easter, 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 everybody will be in their Sunday best. It'll be great. It's my favorite other than Christmas Eve service and maybe remembering your baptism service in January. Easter Sunday is just fantastic at First United Methodist Church in Shreveport. Well, your Holy Week sounds like the complete opposite of my Holy Week. Oh, tell me. We're we're going to the farm where there's no electricity, there's no cell phone mm-hmm. coverage, no internet, and we're just going to rest and be quiet and read books and do puzzles and just spend time with family. And I'm really looking forward to it. We I think oh. we, we need it. And the church that we go to, and, and this is typical for most of the, the Protestant churches here, they sort of de-emphasize, for better or for worse, a lot of the kind of traditional liturgical year stuff. And so they'll be, they actually are going to do a sunrise service this year, which is out of the ordinary on Easter Sunday. But that'll pretty much be all that they do for the week that's any different from a normal week. Holy week here is sort of like spring break and Thanksgiving wrapped up into one. So it's Mm -hmm. just everybody gets together with family, the folks they haven't seen during the year, usually at the beach. Uh, A lot of people will just put tents on the beach for the week and that sort of thing. And so um, we're not super interested in being in the middle of all of that. So we're just going to go to the farm and hide for a week. And then we'll come back out after Jesus is out of the tomb. We'll come back to society. I'm looking forward to doing that next week, but I also 
of course, miss and see great value in the things that you all have going on this week and look forward to whenever and wherever, you know, we'll have an opportunity to, to do that kind of a Holy Week. Mm-hmm. It is really, it's a special, special week. And I love walking through the, the passion narrative of putting myself in Jesus's shoes. And we have a little, um, a smaller Catholic church, just uh, two streets over, and they put up a stations of the cross on the outside. And that's one of my favorite things to do on that Saturday is go with Chris over and walk through the stations of the cross and just remember. I think that's what this whole season is, uh, is about is remembering, just remember, remember, mm-hmm. remember. Yeah. Yeah. I had a conversation yesterday with my Arabic teacher about Holy Week. Um, he was telling me about Ramadan and I was telling him about Holy Week. And that's what I kept saying. It's when, you know, we just, it's time to remember and reflect and appreciate the things that happened during what we call the passion. So uh, I learned some good vocabulary during that class session that I hadn't had to, to know before. Don't ask me any of it. Don't put me on the spot. <laughs> okay. Um, but yeah, the remembering for sure. And that's the reason, I mean, I think even disconnected from the actual church activities, being on the farm, we still, it's a wonderful place to just be quiet and remember and reflective and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But I hope that no matter what people's plans are for Holy Week, whether it's a busy week like yours or a relaxing week like mine, I hope that they will take the time to listen to the next episode of The Broken Banquet. Will, that was flawless because I remember when we did indeed talk with Dr. Julie Dodge, a cohort mate of John Woodward and Stefania Tarasut and me. We had such a great time learning together over those three years. And what what Julie brought to the table was this adventurous spirit. I loved going on a safari with her and venturing through Thailand with her. We took road trips around Ireland together. She's a great travel buddy, Will. And, uh, but even more importantly than that, she had this beautiful mindset of what is cultural empathy. And she taught that to all of us. She didn't just do the research and write her dissertation, but she actually taught us. And so that's what today's episode is all about. It's a little bit different. We're not talking about somebody who's serving in the mission field, though she really is serving in her own field, her own mission field, and and teaching this concept of what is cultural empathy. But today, I hope our listeners uh, can understand what this concept is and how they too can live it out in their daily life. And what we'll do is Uh, In our show notes, we will uh, link to her curriculum, but I wouldn't do that so that everybody can take a look and and see what it is that she's written. Yeah, I really enjoyed getting to talk to her, and I I kind of wish everyone who comes to spend time with us in Costa Rica could also sit down and talk to her before they come. Maybe they'll listen to this episode, and that'll be a start, but... Um, the idea that cultural empathy isn't a goal that we set, it's not the end of a process, but it's actually the process. I hope people will enjoy hearing from her as much as we enjoyed talking to her. Absolutely. Well, friends, it is our pleasure to introduce to you a wonderful friend of mine, Dr. Julie Dodge. Hey, Will. Hey, Ashley. 
Well, I'm so excited that you get to meet my friend Julie today. Julie's not just a friend of mine. She's a friend of John Woodward. She's a friend of uh, Stefania. She's a friend mm-hmm. of so many people that you already know. So it's mm-hmm. like a two-degree separation of you and Julie. So hi, Julie. Hi, Julie. Hey, Will. And, you know, I just let you know, anytime you need guests, um, I'm always open to travel. Yeah. <laughs> now that well, we're friends. Yeah, Stick close to Ashley and you'll you'll wind up down here sooner or later. Yeah. I just took John down uh, not even a year ago. So Yeah. There you go. Mm-hmm. Look, if we're gonna have broken banquet podcast reunions in the Holy Land, I don't see why you all can't have doctoral cohort reunions in Costa Rica. It makes sense to me. I mean I haven't been to Costa Rica, so it seems like a place that I should go to. And our insects sound way more soothing than Ashley. Well, I was envisioning the crickets, not the the raspy thing that she had. But that might have been, you know, right. that might have been more reflective of your own state of mind right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it could be. That's a good point. Could be. Well, Will, I think Julie and I have traveled to more places together than you and I have traveled together. So we have Whoa. literally traveled the world together. We've uh, been in England. South Africa, Thailand, um, Hong Kong, uh, Uganda, and Ireland most recently. Tattoo to prove it. Oh, you do? That's right. Okay, so Will, I was going to get a tattoo in Ireland, but you and I had already decided that we were going to get the Jerusalem cross when we were in Jerusalem. And it was just a few months before our Holy Land trip that Julie and I were in Ireland. And I was like, oh, I really just wanted my next tattoo to be in Jerusalem. So I didn't Mm -hmm. get a tattoo with Julie. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So instead, I got one. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I mean, at least somebody got tattooed. It's not a trip if someone doesn't come home with a tattoo, right? Exactly. Yes. Well, let's get down to business. The reason why I wanted to have Dr. Julie Dodge on the Broken Banquet podcast today is because she lives cultural empathy. And cultural empathy, I'll have her explain it to you, Will, but something that has come across many, many times on the podcast is humility, empathy, relationships, partnerships, so many of these things that are near and dear to our hearts. And and Julie... I would almost call her an expert on on this. And so I wanted today to be a little bit different, Will. Maybe it could be like a more of a teaching episode where we introduce Julie and then have her give us a little lesson in cultural empathy. That sounds great. We can do that. I, I just need to get my cue cards up and, you know, no, I'm kidding. Well, Julie, you want to give like a 50,000 foot overview of who you are? Well, uh, so right now I am a consultant uh, who uh, provides support and training for government and nonprofits around um, human services, uh, behavioral health. I work on policy. I work on program design. And I came, I've just been in a wild range of places. I was a, a professor and a dean of the College of Health and Human Sciences at Concordia University, Portland, up until its closure in 2020 which was not my fault. Um, and then, uh, and I have had a, a long time working in uh, nonprofits as a social worker and more at the leadership program design 
um, that kind of level. More than that, I am a, a Christian, a believer, uh, been a member of a small house church for, for a good 10 years into being a house church. And it's a shared leadership model. So we all take on the responsibilities of serving and partnering together. Um, I'm kind of the key po- hub point for it, but you know, it is absolutely a team process. Cultural empathy as, as a tool or as a skill has been a, a guiding practice. I think subconsciously for for a long time, but then the, over the last you know ten to fifteen years, I've really refined what it is and what it means, and how do we support people with it? So it's it's a passion, um, and it, it's a way of being. It's not just a, I have this skill that I pull out three times a day when I talk to people but it's a, a way of being. What fascinated me was your doctoral work, your your research uh, resulted in a dissertation and a product called, but I wouldn't do that. Why don't you talk to us about what cultural empathy is? Well, I think I would start with what is empathy. And most people think about what empathy is, the ability to understand another person's thoughts and feelings. You know, we talk about it like if I were, you know, walk a mile in another person's shoes and, and, the, the challenge is the I. If I put on your shoes, I'm still going to walk like me because my experiences, you know, my gait, it's all attached to my body. And so, you know, I can walk in your shoes and I can see the things that you see, but I don't necessarily understand how you experience it. And so often what I would hear from people when they were working with people as students in community, in churches, it's like someone would you know, tell them their story and say, well, I'm going to do this. And their reaction, not always in the moment, but to me would be like, I would not do that. Because it didn't go with my personal normal. Mm-hmm. And most of us don't recognize our normal. Our normal is, you know, I wake up and do certain things every morning. You know, I, my first thing in the morning is I get up and take a shower. Um, and I take a shower because I am not a morning ray of sunshine. I am a morning cranky pants and the shower helps wake me up. Other people like to get up and they'll sit down with their coffee or their tea and they'll read the paper and they'll chat with people. And I'm like, don't talk to me. My, that's my normal, you know? So when people talk about, oh, I get up every morning and I exercise it at four thirty, five o'clock, I think they're slightly unbalanced. <laughs> Crazy. Right. Right. So there, bless you. It's okay, Will. Um, <laughs> I'm more than slightly unbalanced, just for the record. It's the scale <laughs> is tilted way, way, way over in that direction. <laughs> now, if you want to do some yoga with me in the evening, I'm totally down for that. But you know, it's, it's all about our norms. And we tend to put our norms on other people. So when we try to understand their thoughts and feelings, we're doing it often by putting our norms on them. Mm-hmm. And so cultural empathy is to step back and say, can I try to understand how a person is thinking and feeling given their cultural identity, their lived experience, their values, beliefs, their identity? And I don't know what that is, without having a conversation with them. I can't assume what you believe. I can't assume why you think something is right or good or best practice. 
I don't know all of your culture's practices, values, and beliefs. So when I come in with my American values to a different culture and say, well, this is how we do it, another cultural group might look at me like, that's silly. Why would you do it like that? I remember having a conversation in South Africa. I was there a couple days early and uh, I was wandering around some shops and, and there was a, a woman who was working there. Her name was Julie too. So, you know, we had a thing and there were some Westerners there and they were talking loudly and maybe being a little bit annoying and it's possible. And I made a comment to the woman who I didn't know her name was Juliet. And I was like, I, 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 I guess you have to tolerate a lot of things, don't you? And she's like, yeah. And then we started talking. We, were, we had probably a half hour, 45-minute conversation. And uh, it was shortly after Robin Williams had committed had died by suicide. Mm-hmm. And she looks at me and she's like, I don't understand you Americans. I don't even understand what, why are you so sad all the time? Why, why would someone take their lives? And she told me her story about, you know, living in the shanty towns and being a survivor of domestic violence and being so poor at Christmas, she had nothing for her children. She's like, but I wasn't depressed. I would, and I would have never thought of committing suicide. And she talked about how her whole community wrapped around her and got gifts for her kids and made, and invited them for meals. And, you know, she's like, so I just don't understand why you Americans why this is such an issue. Why would you even think like that? Mm-hmm. And I think that's a great example of cultural empathy is she was expressing, this is my normal. I've lived through a lot. I don't get why someone would think about suicide. Mm-hmm. In the United States, we have different ideas and we may have different support systems and different values that would allow someone to think along those lines. Um, or they may be struggling with a mental health challenge that, that leads them in that direction. But without that understanding, I'm just going to look at you and say, you're weird. And so cultural empathy is that chance to pause and to engage someone in conversation for a starting point. It doesn't mean I'm going to agree with you either. Mm-hmm. You know, It just means that the more I understand who you are, it helps me to understand better why you think the way you do, why you feel the way you do. Because all of those things are informed by the life that we've lived, the culture in which we live, and our our identity and our values. I want to ask this question in sort of the most basic way possible as an exercise. If I was a church leader in your community, and I have a group of people in my congregation who are really interested on going interested in going on a mission trip somewhere abroad. And I reached out to you and said, we've never done this before. We've never had anyone talk to us about missions or train us for missions. But a friend of a friend said that for some reason, being culturally empathetic is important. Can you, why does that matter? Who, if we're just going to help, why can't we just go help? How do you, in the simplest terms, how do you, how do you explain why this matters? Why isn't it, why isn't it okay to just go help and then go home? And that's sort of the end of the story. Oh, there's so many things I can say about that. I think we'll start with an attitude. 
um, which is, you know, before I can even practice empathy, I need to practice cultural humility. And that attitude, that attitude which was in Christ, who humbled himself even unto the point of death on my behalf. Um, he didn't go out there and say, oh my gosh, y'all are, I mean, he did call out the Pharisees and so on, but I mean, he didn't say, all of you sinful, broken people, do you not remember that I'm God? Because I got this. And even from a nice helping way, he could have said, I'm God, you're not, get over yourselves. I'm here to help, just do what I say. We might not have received him super well that way. He revealed himself slowly through relationship, mm -hmm. through humility, through being a carpenter and one of us and took on our identity in that so that he could, we could relate to him. As a helper, humility is not saying, I'm here to help you, because that automatically puts me in a position of power over you. Mm -hmm. I'm the helper, you're not. Mm -hmm. That's not super helpful. Yeah, it's not a relationship. So humility is stepping back and saying, I, I want to listen. I want to learn. I want to understand. And my way might be different than your way, or your different might your way might be different than mine, but it's not necessarily better. And I think sometimes, you know, our well-meaning faith communities go to help with our agendas and we cause harm mm -hmm. because we just say, this is what we can do and you should like it. So it's taking that attitude of humility first. And then in terms of the cultural empathy place, how am I to determine what is helpful to you mm -hmm. if I don't understand how your community thinks and feels, what your culture, what your values, what your beliefs are. I want to listen to what's important to you. You know, so I might have my team of happy, willing people who can paint, uh, but maybe you don't need another coat of paint. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Whether you're talking about leadership training or service or discipleship, how do I do that if I don't understand who you are? Well, and I think something that you taught me too, after after teaching, uh, walking with you through this cultural empathy training that you were putting together, the, the curriculum you were putting together, one of the things I took from it was the next time I went to Haiti, there are always problems in Haiti. There just seemed to always be problems. I sat with Montgerard one day and he was telling me about a problem. And I said, is this the first time this problem came up? And this is because of you, Julie. Is this the first time this problem has come up? And he said, no. And so my next question was, well, how did you solve it then? As opposed to me automatically jumping in and wanting to fix it to hear what his solutions were and then how I can be a part of his solutions. And that was a big light bulb moment for me, Julie, of realizing that I needed to step myself back to know that they have answers. I didn't come to be the answers. They're just telling me their problem because they want me to be a part of it, to understand it and to walk through life with them. 
That is a great, reminds me, there's a, a, well, now he's retired, but a Harvard researcher, uh, anthropologist, and and, uh, doctor, Arthur Kleinman. And he's done a lot of research around um, providing services that make sense in different communities. And the condensed version, he's actually got eight questions that he would go through with a community in terms of thinking about medical needs. But I, I kind of, did, for simplicity, go to what we call the four C's. And the first one is asking the person or the community, so um, with regard to the problem they're discussing, what do they think caused it? So the first C is cause. What do you think caused it? The second one, or actually the first one is what do you call it? How do you name it? What is the problem? You know, so like in, in my world of social work and behavioral health, um, we might talk about mental illness. Somebody else might say, well, no, they, you know, in another culture, they might, might call it something very different. So what do you call it? And what do you think caused it? And then how do you cope with it? The, the third C is what, the, how do you cope? What are the things you already do? And then it leads you to that question, is it working? And then the fourth one is what is your concern, which, or how can we help you with your concern? So really, how can we partner with you and walk with you on, in addressing this thing that you have identified as important? You know, given your cultural context, how do you already deal with it? What is acceptable? What's not? Um, you know, and, and so on. I mean, it's, it's so helpful. Um, I often give an example of, you know, so you have a, 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 Lat- a Latina woman who has been recently diagnosed with diabetes. And their nutritionist is like, you need to go on this diet. Well, that's great. But in her community, everybody eats the same thing. Mm-hmm. So then and the different way is to say, okay, so how do we work together with your family to talk about eating habits and what you and they can do together? And what makes sense to you? Because because we also often, you know, a person from Central American or South American culture might might agree with the doctor because they're authority, but they're not actually going to do it. They'll just say, yes, 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 because it would just be disrespectful to say, no, that won't work. So it becomes on us to be able to say, let's figure out what will work. Ashley, I don't know about you, but I'm surprised how much we wind up talking about time on on these episodes and how, because everything that like we've talked about so far, uh, we all agree how important this is, but this takes time. Like I'm thinking about what an obstacle this is for, and I'm thinking about it on the local church level, preparing volunteers who are going out into the world um, to have this kind of healthy mindset to set the tone for the kinds of relationships that then they're going to build so that then they can sit with a Montgerard and have that conversation. But all of that takes time. It takes time as far as having a long-term vision for what this relationship is. So there's consistency in the contact between people. It takes time of being thoughtful and preparing and going through like a curriculum like you have to learn about this kind of stuff. It takes time of actually sitting down with the person, putting down your hammer or your shovel or whatever it is, Mm. 
and taking the time to have those conversations. And that's a huge obstacle because of the, the, the tension between being human beings and human doings. We want to get to it. We want to get to work. We want to feel productive. We want what we've invested in whatever this opportunity is to feel like we're getting our money's worth and all of those kinds of factors. So I think what I'm realizing is that in, it really takes a complete redefining of expectations and relationships on the church's part if this that's so important is going to be an element or not. Because it's a lot easier to just sign up for the trip, pay the deposit, go for a week, do what they ask you to do, and go home. Um, that's not it's still a time commitment, but it's a different kind of time commitment. Do you know what I mean? Which is frustrating because I want people to think about this stuff. I want people to get it because I know how much better it's going to be for everybody at the table if, if this is how we're prepared to come to the table. There was, and there was no question in there. I'm sorry. There probably should have been. It wasn't. No, but... But it's a great point, Will, because, I mean, United States culture and many Western cultures are very task-oriented. We're individualistic and we're task-oriented. So, you know, you, you talk about setting the table. For a, a Westerner, and, and the more stringent they're or closer they are aligned with a task-oriented culture, the goal is to have a good dinner. Right. So I'm going to make good food. I want people on time. I want, you know, all the tasks and the utensils out. And, and I might be so busy being my Martha and, and making the dinner that I don't sit and enjoy the conversation and other parts of the world or, and, and even in the United States, there are cultures that are far more relational where, you know, the whole point of the meal is not to have dinner, but to be with my people. And to recognize that difference is, is huge. You know, relationship takes time. Mm -hmm. But isn't it well worth it? Absolutely. And Will, I'll jump in because do you remember the first couple of days in Italy together that our meals, our dinner times were three hours long? <laughs> and the, the, the mamas who were cooking for us, that was just a natural thing for them that courses would come out and then you would have wine and then you would talk and then a next course would come out. And then, and, and I remember someone, I don't remember who it was saying, we got to make this go quicker, <laughs> but no, no, this was the best part of every day. Everyone was around the table together connecting. Yeah. I remember thinking that that first meal was over like three or four times before it was actually over. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it definitely, we had to sort of reset, you know, our expectations, even on like a micro level for that trip, reset our expectations yeah. so that it wasn't, yeah, we eat at seven by quarter to eight, we're done. And everybody's going to go off to their rooms or whatever and, and switch it to, this is fellowship time. There just happens to be a meal happening in the midst of it. A fantastic meal in the midst of it. Yeah. 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 
it was not hard to sit at that table for three hours. It was pretty easy to do. I mean, think about even, you know, we go back to the New Testament and there's this, this one meal that happened, some kind of last supper. You may have heard about it. I mean, how many chapters does John dedicate to telling the story of that last meal and what Jesus shared and what he did? I mean, there's times I'm like, oh my gosh, are we still having the last supper? You know, you're moving through. It's like, oh, we're still doing this, right? It's an extended amount of time because it was so important. It was like, you know, these last moments of wisdom that Jesus was imparting to his followers, right? And that meal was cherished, not just because it was the last meal with them. I mean, he'd be back, but that meal that had so much meaning that they could look back and go, oh, now I get it. So now I'm thinking about a conversation we had earlier with, with another person we've interviewed, and she was talking about her sort of introduction into the mission field. She lived with a family. She had been invited uh, to live with this family and, and had a, a extended period of time where they were teaching her things about the community that she needed to learn before she could become a part of the community to some degree. And that's great when you're an individual that's making that kind of a commitment for a very long term to be into a place. But how do you, and again, I'm just because of the chair I'm sitting in, I'm thinking about these teams of volunteers that come to be a part of what we're doing in Costa Rica, the groups that Ashley brings from her church. And, and Ashley, I mean, what are the ways that you do this? How do you teach people how to be culturally empathetic when they're going to be here for a week where, you know, they're not here living with families for a year where they're going to see this stuff on a daily basis. And it's, you got to learn it or, you know, it's not going to work. So it, how do you do it in this sort of condensed where there's not that much time? How does that, how do you do that? How do you get over that hurdle? I think in your preparation, you acknowledge that because the other thing that, you know, a lot of folks who are going, they're going to say, well, I'm going to this place. I don't speak their language. How do you expect me to be in relationship with them? Mm -hmm. I, I, I can do a thing, but I can't be in relationship. And, and there are a set of skills. And, and I will share with you, I mean, if anybody's interested, um, that artifact that I did for my dissertation, I turned into an iBook. It's free. Um, and it's on teaching cultural empathy, as well as some basic skills. You know, and it talks about cultural humility. And it also talks about some basic skills, like um, even how we be behave, being tolerant of ambiguity. Just because I don't understand a thing, doesn't mean that it is uh, wrong. It might feel uncomfortable. I I'm remembering a meal in Hong Kong, Ashley, where we went and there was a family style meal and the food's all coming around on this like moving turntable, right? And there are fish, whole fish with their eyes on and, you know, the head, not just the eyes, but the head and, you know, whole animals. And, and, and I'm watching my peers all in the same doctoral program on leadership and global perspectives going, Oh my gosh, do you see that? That's so amazing. Loudly. And I was yeah. like, okay, that's one of those things where instead of exclaiming, this is not normal to me. We don't do this at my favorite restaurant. 
to be able to say, gosh, that is interesting. I wonder what the practice is behind that. So to pause and to be curious. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a delicacy there. And for us, it's a little bit different. I think in all of those things, anything that causes me to think, oh, that's that's weird. Mm-hmm. Well, let's just pause and say, okay, what, why do I think it's weird? Is there an opportunity for me to learn more about this? How does this make sense in this place where I am? One of the things, Ashley, when we first got to Uganda and we met up at, at, this, at the Agape School, uh-huh. all of the kids lined up and they, you know, all excited to see us. And they gave this giant hugs and braces and you swing you back and forth and say, thank you for coming and push you and then bring you back in. And Okay, this is not my normal. But I went back to, to my classrooms and I was like, so if I started class like this, mm-hmm. what would you do? And they're like, well, you wouldn't do that, would you? I was like, but this was their normal. This was how we greet. I would say the most simple thing is if something causes you to feel uncomfortable and it's not because something is, you know, absolutely going wrong, but to be curious, what is this? How do I engage? If someone offers me food, what is my best response? Um, I mean, I could go on and on. I have stories and stories that back these things up. But how do we show respect and honor to the people that we're with Um, by being curious? I think those are two things that if our listeners hear for an everyday relationship, not just a cross-cultural partnership or a, you know, abiding relationship with someone globally, but on a daily basis when meeting someone or walking into any situation, be curious and pause, pause and wonder as opposed to automatically judging um, and considering something different automatically wrong as opposed to different just being different. Um, those are those are big lessons that I quickly come out of my mouth as a lesson for others to learn, but that I'm still trying to put into practice on my own because I'm one of those loud Americans. I probably was one of the ones that said something about the fish, but I, I also talked about the fish in Uganda because Karis and Evan would fight over the fish eyes. So I mean, it was it was just a natural. You know, thing for for me to think about, but um, I love uh, I love the Maori culture. Their greeting is that you you go forehead to forehead, nose to nose, and you breathe in the other spirit as a greeting. So you're mm. it's very up close and personal, and it was very interesting to watch my congregation members who were with me on that trip naturally go into that because they had heard you talk about cultural empathy when you came to the breakfast of blessings. They had gone through a lot of the uh, orientation type things that I do for our missions relationships and our missions trips, uh, our pilgrimages, our family reunion trips, whatever you want to call them. But they had gone through those. And so when being put in that situation, they did it 
And then they talked about it, not with, oh my gosh, I can't believe that I just went forehead to forehead with a male that I've never met before. Instead, it was a, oh, wow. I just breathed in the spirit of someone else, another creation of God, another human being that I'm now connected to because we're breathing the same air. It, it was a beautiful thing to watch because that's a not normal, that had not been a normal thing for any of us. Julie, one of our favorite words on the podcast is abiding. You know, it's one of my favorite words as it is. I love meno, the Greek word for abide. Um, it, and it, appears that it's not just a good indicator of a healthy missional partnership, but it's also a good indicator of just relationship in general to abide with each other. And we're not human beings. No, we are human beings. We're not human doings. (laughs) And what does, what part does cultural empathy play in an abiding relationship? How can you apply cultural empathy to an abiding relationship? I think cultural empathy is all about relationship. It's how we start relationship. How do I have a relationship with you if I'm not interested in understanding who you are? Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the things that got me started on this years ago was there was a psychology, a, a psychological theory that, that basically said, if you understand how a person thinks, their behavior makes sense. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, it's, it's more than that, though. It's not just how you think, it's how you feel, it's your lived experience. So if you understand that other person, how they interact with the world makes sense, including how they interact with me. And likewise, this is mutual. It's not just I do this to you. We should be building this relationship together. Mm-hmm. You know, Am I willing to share myself with you? Well, sometimes we think, you know, especially as helpers, as people going out to serve others, it's like, I am doing to you, not to me. And that's the key word I'm doing, right? Mm-hmm. Am I willing to say, here's my pain? Or here's the question I have sometimes about God? Or here's how my family has shaped my beliefs? Am I willing to share that? Am I willing to share who I am with another person? Because that's part of building that relationship. You know, when we break bread together, it's not just about the bread, right? It is sharing our lives and being honest Mm -hmm. and creating a a space where we can be. Mm -hmm. Have you ever been in a space where you were afraid to share yourself? If you're afraid to share yourself, what is that? Because you don't think they're gonna understand or you think you're going to be judged. Yeah, because you're not good enough, or maybe you messed up, or what did you do? What? When? Yeah. Instead of, wow, there's Ashley. She's my friend. She's also a human being, which means that she is made in the image of God, but also born into a fallen world. And I bet she's had some struggles in life. I'm sorry to out you like that, but I bet you've had some struggles in life. Mm-hmm. And so have I. That's where we create the space. So yeah, it's also about sharing our joys. We would do this this exercise, you know, make a new BFF in 15 minutes. And and people would always talk about, you know, well, what do you have an interest? And they'd look for common interests. But those are really superficial things. And my encouragement has long been, 
instead of asking about the weather or your job or your spouse or your kids or I mean, and those are great things. Tell me what what brings you joy? What makes your heart happy? And and the whole tone of our conversation changes when we talk about real things. Mm-hmm. You know, what what brings you joy? And I'll share mine too. Ashley, I'm wondering about the, the relationships that you have with all of these different global mission partners and whether or not that level of sort of vulnerability is sort of a marker for you. Uh, like when you get to that point, it, it, it's a different kind of relationship now. Like mm-hmm. you can you can have a relationship with someone and you can share things together and you can share experiences together, but there's sort of this threshold where you, do you sort of recognize there's a point where, okay, now we're in a different sort of category mm-hmm. because we can share this really heavy stuff, these struggles, these things that we're going through in our ministries or in our, you know, our marriages or whatever it is, is that sort of a, a marker for you as far as how you, you see, cause you got, you have wonderful friendships with so many people around the world and you are to some degree a support for them. And I'm not talking about like financial support, but emotional support, just the faithful friend. So do you, do you see that? Like, yes, yes. And, and I don't know how to say this without making some feel bad. Not all relationships are created equal. Mm-hmm. There are people that I let into a deeper area than I do others. And I don't know what exactly is what's exactly the jumping point that I will go to the deeper level with. Um, There's a level of comfort or familiarity. You and I have known each other for, let's see, 2009, right? I feel like over the last three years since COVID, probably since COVID, we were good friends before, but I feel like Mm -hmm. for whatever reason, we really melded, maybe went over the hump, I don't know what, but now inner circle, you know what I mean? Like, like I'm going to melt down to you in my car as we're sitting in front of the TJ Maxx parking lot, waiting for somebody (laughs) to come jump us with a battery. And so I'm going to tell you everything that's on my heart. And I don't know what that, what it is other than a comfort of relationship. I mean, there is that reality. I mean, I I, I think you've met people and some people are safer than others. Hmm. Um, and trust takes some time Mm -hmm. and, you know, just because I've come to understand how a person thinks and feels doesn't mean that I'm always going to agree with them or I feel safe enough to let them into that space. There is a, a, a healthy place for boundaries. Um, you know, sometimes when I ask people, you know, can you tell me something that made your heart happy this week? Some people are going to say, well, I got X, Y, and Z done. Great. And someone else is going to say, I went for a walk out in the woods and I sat and I listened to God. Those are two very different conversations Mm -hmm. and a different depth, right? And, you know, if, if I were to open myself in all ways to every person I met, I am not wise enough to always know which are the safest. Thanks for making me feel better about that. You're welcome. Yeah. 
That's a good question, Will, though. I, and I just don't know what that what that piece is. I, I don't know. That isn't to say that I'm not close to everyone that we're in relationship right. with. I, there's definitely that. But I, I don't know if I'm going to bear my soul yeah. to everybody. Right. I don't know. Well, <laughs> didn't even Jesus only have 12? Yeah, there you go. I mean, there were hundreds, but and there were 12. Honest, he even narrowed from there. There were three. So. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. One of the most enlightening things for me about these different conversations we've had, we've had was reading Free and Congregational Mission before we talked to Hunter. And he uses this analogy, analogy when he's talking about healthy relationships of Alcoholics Anonymous and how the thing, one of the things that makes Alcoholics Anonymous so effective is the they're able to achieve a level of collective vulnerability because everyone there, the starting point is the same. My name is Will and I'm an alcoholic. And so from there, everybody's the same. And, and how, if, how can the church get to a point where that's sort of where our relationships start is with that same kind of vulnerability. And I see that in the church here in, in Costa Rica that to me seems very different from what I see in the, from churches that I'm you know, involved with in the States. And I've said this before, I've heard people share things here in front of the whole congregation that I've thought there is no way I would have said that in front of an entire congregation. But because it's so familial, it makes sense to them to do that. And so I'm, one, I'm wondering what the connection is between achieving the level of cultural empathy that needs to be achieved and also having that same level of, of vulnerability and humility. Like where, is the, where do those things intersect? And maybe they don't. I mean, maybe they're two important elements of the same equation, but they don't really overlap. But I'm, I'd be curious to think more about that and and where where they might. I don't know if that makes sense at all. It does, and I think to borrow from, you know, continuing on the the twelve step analogy, it ties back to humility. One of the the twelve steps are you know full of these little sayings, and one of them is there, but for the grace of God go I. And. Uh, for me, I've embraced that. I know myself as a fallen human being, and I know that. And willing to say, you know, given the right circumstance, the right situation, I could do anything. I could be an alcoholic. I could be an addict. I could kill somebody. I don't like to think that because I would like to think of myself as a good human being. And that's God in me that allows me to be a different person. But I think our ability and, and and many of us have been raised in churches where we can't say that we're supposed to be good and we we've been raised on being good and that's how you show you're a follower is by good deeds even though we may give a lot of time to God's love we lean into the being good God's grace picks me up where I am and if each of us, I mean, if we're able to get to that place where we could say, that is me, that or it could be me, 
And instead of looking and saying, oh, thank God, it's not me. I mean, well, there is yeah. that point uh, that it yeah. is. But to be able to say that, that is me. My natural state is a sinful na nature. My natural state is confused and broken. Mm -hmm. But my restored state in Christ, that's something beautiful. And that's what I bring to the conversation, right? I have Jesus in me, not Julie who guts it out. And, and maybe we need to talk about Julie who guts it out too as just part of the human struggle. But when we go to that place of humility of acknowledging, then then it, it helps to create that common starting place. Mm -hmm. And I recognize the Jesus in you and how distinct the Jesus is in you is from the Jesus in me. And then that's when the really exciting things for me happen because I can start to learn and be stretched and be challenged by how Jesus is different in your life than he is in my life. But the starting point, again, has to be humility. Otherwise, yeah. I'm just going to want your Jesus to look just like my Jesus because my Jesus is the right Jesus. Which is a great point, Will. It goes all right back to cultural empathy. Your Jesus, based on your lived life, how you've been raised, experienced, trained, taught, is different than how someone else experiences Jesus. It doesn't mean it's wrong. And I think it's that same way of, you know, often we talk about empathy as I know how you feel. Now, I know how I would feel. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What I do know, I understand what joy is. Now, there may be different things that make bring you joy than me, but I understand what joy is. I know what sorrow is, and we have may have different trigger points for that, but I understand sorrow. So it's really, what is that other person experiencing? How are they experiencing Jesus? How are they experiencing the world today? How is that? And that, that becomes that, that starting place. And I think that's that leads us to kind of the wrap-up question of how does cultural empathy help us to create a banquet table where everyone is welcome? I think it is that place where we begin. I often refer to cultural empathy as a starting place. It's not the end. Right. It's, it's just a way to start the conversation, to begin to see and understand one another. And the more we welcome people to the table and want to hear their stories, then the more interesting it, it becomes. <laughs> I'm going to have different relationships with each person at the table, but it's, it's a place to welcome, to start. I'm so glad that you said it that way because it just, it, it makes it really clear that this isn't like a process you go through to earn your your cultural empathy merit badge, you know, at the end of the process, but it's, it's, some, it should be something that guides every relationship that we're in from the beginning. It's not the goal of the relationship isn't to get to a point where you and I are socially or not socially culturally empathetic with one another. It's, we should start from a place where that's the mentality and the expectation from the very beginning, um, which is a completely different thing. And so being culturally empathetic is it's that it is the process. It's not a goal. It's the, I'm glad you said it the way you said it. <laughs> well, thank you. 
I think the one thing that I would say just to, you know, to go big is it starts with relationship and where I'm working in cultural empathy now is how do we actually build programs and, and systems grounded in cultural empathy that is, you know, really built on who people are. You know, I, when we think about going back to that, you know, my church is going to go on a mission trip. Am I building a mission trip for the people who are going or are we doing it for the people that we're going to serve? Mm-hmm. Good and question. Going, and if we're going to serve, what, what do they want? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I know that takes some time too, um, but that, that to me is that next level of, you know, when we think about groups and projects and, and uh, our whole churches, what do they hope for? And what makes sense to them? And what would be meaningful to them? Good word. Good word, Julian. And we appreciate everything that you've brought to the table today to teach us more about cultural empathy, what that is. I hope that our listeners will take with them the applications of listening, being humble, pausing, being curious in their everyday lives, not just in a mission field, not just in a church setting, but in every walk, every facet of their life. So I I appreciate the words you've given, the encouragement you've given to send us out from here and to be better followers of Christ as we try to imitate him and how he was culturally empathetic. So thanks for that, Julie. I've learned a lot today. Yeah, thanks, Julie. It was wonderful to finally meet you. Ashley's been excited about this for a long time, and I can see why. Thank you. Well, it's really a privilege to be here with y'all. Um, I appreciate the invitation, and uh, yeah, this was fun. Come back anytime, Julie. Invite me anytime. You've been listening to The Broken Banquet, a podcast by Will Bailey and Ashley Goad. Music provided by Irene and the Sleepers. Join us next week for another episode. He's prepared the table. All things are ready. Come to the feast.